SoFi, the all-in-one super app for banking, borrowing, and investing. Earn industry-leading APY, get great loan rates, and trade stocks. SoFi, get your money right. Banking products and loans offered by SoFi Bank N.A., NMLS 696891. Brokerage and active investing products offered through SoFi Securities, LLC, member FINRA, SIPC. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections membership-only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators, and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. SoFi, the all-in-one super app for banking, borrowing, and investing. Earn industry-leading APY, get great loan rates, and trade stocks. SoFi, get your money right. Banking products and loans offered by SoFi Bank N.A., NMLS 696891. Brokerage and active investing products offered through SoFi Securities, LLC, member FINRA, SIPC. Welcome to the Monday edition of On the Tape. I'm Dan Nathan, joined as always by Guy Christopher Adami and EY from SoFi. That would be Liz Young. She works at a place where you can get your money right all in one app. Liz, busy morning for you. SoFi's earnings are out. I know you were just on Listening to that call, we're not going to get into that here, but we have a busy earnings week. Some of the largest stocks in the entire market, Apple being one of them, report Thursday after the close. Also, Amazon, a bunch of other stuff in there. We have some data. We have ISM manufacturing. We have services. We have weekly claims. we got a bunch of stuff like that. I think earnings are going to be the main event here, people. But before we get into it, we've got to tease a conversation that Guy and I had last week with Clark Briner. He is the managing partner of Revere Capital it is a private credit fund. We talk a lot about the commercial real estate space and I guess this newfound interest in private credit with the demise of SVB and just a whole host of funds moving into that space. It's a great conversation. So stick around for that. And also, this is just a little, like, little, I don't know, housekeeping or something like that. We have water bottles, risk reversal right. water bottles. Liz, you're going to want one of these things. And you know how you get one? You get, go to your favorite podcast store, leave a review for On the Tape, email Amanda at contact at riskreversal.com with a screenshot of that review. And Amanda is going to send you one. How about that? What do these water bottles look like? I'm, I'm kind of snotty about water they're bottles. Pretty, they're pretty dope, Liz. And you will get one if we have you back in the studio. Those are like the things you put like on your bicycle. And when you're done with them, you throw them to some yeah. kid on these the side the of the road. You, these are the ones that you keep. Okay. These are the ones that you keep. All right, guys, let's get into this here. What are you guys most interested in? Usually we start the Monday pod a little bit. We got like dueling calls. We always have Mike Wilson. We have Tom Lee. And we have our main man, Rosie. Mike Wilson's talking this morning a little bit about how 2023 is looking a lot like 2019, this kind of late cycle sort of rally. He reminds us that the 2019 rally guy, you know what happened in late 2018. The S&P 500 dropped how much in that last 19.9% from Halloween until Christmas Eve. And then, of course, Jerome Powell, who was newly put into the role probably five or six months prior, got scared. He got spooked. He also got browbeat by then administration, and he decided to reverse course once again. And so we were off to the races. We got back a lot of what we lost in Q4 of 2018, and, and it's feeling a little bit like that right now. Liz, as a strategist, and you hear this, and Mike is not doing an about face on his bearish sort of call, I think we're all a bit surprised at the shallowness of the earnings recession that we've had. And I guess it's easy to say, if you look at the data and you look at the earnings right now, you could say that the stock market last year clearly discounted something 
worse than what has transpired in 2023. How are you thinking about this? And especially maybe seasonally, and I mentioned Tom Lee at Fundstrat, and Tom, who has been very bullish this year, he was also very bullish last year, he's mentioning that August seasonally could be a little difficult of a period here, maybe a little bit of a shallow pullback. How are you thinking about it like on a macro level here and how stocks have really done pretty well in this earnings period here, and they didn't seem to mind whatever the Fed had to say last week. How are you thinking about this the, the rest of the summer for the stock market? I think the enthusiasm hasn't faded yet because there hasn't been a reason for it to fade. And, and we know that earnings have been jumping over that low bar. So there has not been a negative shock. There has not also not been a lot of negative economic data. So we sit, we wait, we watch with bated breath every single time a release comes out, particularly the ones that are important like CPI, PCE, jobs numbers. All of that has been either stable or what we expected, and maybe even surprising to the upside. If you look at something like the City Economic Surprise Index for the United States, it's been positive for a while. Look at it for China, it's pretty negative. But for the US, it's been positive. So economic data has been surprising to the upside. One of the things I want to say, you mentioned Mike, Mike Wilson before, there was some commentary last week, or maybe it was the week before that he had capitulated. I didn't hear anywhere that he had actually capitulated. I think he pointed out that if things don't go the way that he expects by maybe the end of the third quarter or something closer to the end of the year, then he would have to admit that, you know what, this is not what I thought. But the baseline expectation and the base theory that he has about where we are in the cycle and what's going to happen with earnings has not changed. So it doesn't sound like he's come off of that mark. And I would agree with him. He's much more focused on earnings than I am, but I'm still focused on the macro environment and what I think is happening in the economic cycle, because one of the battle cries that I've had all year is you have to respect the cycle. And I still think we are very late cycle and that this rally is pretty characteristic of that late cycle behavior. And now everybody is jumping on the bandwagon. I still think that's sort of where we are. And until there's a reason to change course, which I do think will come, we will stay on this wagon. We had Mike Wilson on our podcast a couple of weeks ago, and he actually talked about in length some of the things that were turned out to be clickbait on the prior week, right? I think what happened was the market just took, we were wrong in terms of price action and ran with that thinking that it was some sort of mea culpa and reversal of his opinion or his position. And that's nothing could be obviously farther from the truth. So I think to a certain extent, people have started to figure that out. I don't think Elizabeth ever thought that in the first place, but in a world of immediacy and just looking at a headline, that's the thesis that people took away from that. With that said, what am I looking at? And EY talks about this potential re-steepening of the yield curve, and now people writing about it being a negative sign for liquidity and therefore risk assets, and it's happening. And I think part of the rally on Friday was twofold. I think the data came in a little bit soft, which gave people some sort of hope that, again, the Fed is winning, fine. But the other thing was the Bank of Japan was not as draconian as I think a lot of people thought they would be the night before, and they took some solace from that. But the market is going to absolutely test the BOJ, and I think at some point they're going to flinch or their markets are just going to start to flinch, and it's going to factor its way into our markets as well. So this re-steepening of the yield curve, which we might be on the precipice of, is something that I'm watching this week for sure. I think it's interesting when you hear fairly staunch bulls in, in a raging bull market like Tom has been suggests that we could see a bit of a pullback. And sometimes I wonder if that comes from just some of the sentiment, some of the pushback that if you're a strategist like Mike or Tom, you're out there talking to a, a lot of really large PMs at, at very big shops and, and you can incorporate a little bit of the sentiment that they're thinking about. And we also know that once you get through the kind of the guts of earnings season, which we will be by Friday, and then we're going to get into August and you have the sorts of gains that we have in the S&P, which is up nearly 20% on the year, the NASDAQ 100 is up 44%. I mean, it's just astounding, right? When you think about that. And, and I'm looking at my main fact set screen right here from Friday, and I'll be very frank with you. I was um, not looking at the markets on Friday. And there was some pretty extraordinary single stock moves. This is one, and it just catches my eye here because it was like the poster child for the pull forward during the pandemic, or one of, was Roku. You remember this stock at its highs was trading $500. It closed yesterday on Friday afternoon at $90, and that was up from its low. You ready for this, guys? Its low in December was $38. So here it is from 38 to 89, but down from $500. And when you just think about that and you think about that in market cap terms, this stock 
just gained like a ridiculous amount. It gained $4 billion, got $11.5 billion enterprise uh, value, but it's still down like 75% from its all-time highs. But then I look around, guy, and I look at what went on with the semis, right? So Intel is very near a 52-week high. It was left out of this whole AI party, right, for the better part of the last six months or so. That's joined the party here. We're looking at a bunch of these internet names, and I'm aging myself or dating myself a little bit, but they all had huge gains on Friday afternoon, and even Google, you know, extending its gains from its earth. What, what are you thinking about the whole animal spirits? Is that one of those t- uh, the, those terms that get y'all tweaked a little bit here? Because it feels like we are full on in like crazy euphoria mode right now. I, th- I think you know the answer to that. There's certain phrases that I will never, ever use. I don't know how much longer I'm going to be on God's green earth, as they say, but I can almost promise you with a, with d- a great degree of certainty that certain phrases you won't hear from me. And one of those is animal spirits. It's just, just heard like- it. Just heard it. Just got that on their bingo Tomorrow card. we have what Amanda is calling our bro pod. We have uh, downtown Josh Brown, that is the reform broker of the compound in Friends. And one of his friends, one of his very good friends is Michael Batnick, who's his co-host there. But Michael Batnick also has a podcast called Animal Spirits. It's a great podcast. So the two of them are going to be sitting down with us, guy, in studio. If you were around, Liz, you could moderate this thing for us because that would be pretty dope. I'll be in the city tomorrow. All right, you're coming in then. All right, it's it's Watch out. So check out that. But guy, let's go back to the euphoria thing here. Are you starting to feel it? Mike used the analog of 2019. And what I think is really interesting about 2019 is that we had a yield curve inversion. We had a Fed that just turned dovish. Then we had a steepening. This is to Liz's point a little bit, but we also had earnings growth decelerating and we had margins decelerating. So God, I'd love to get your take on that. And then Liz, again, it seems like a good analog from Mike. That's exactly what we're seeing. I think it is a good analog. Now, part of this also is we're basically in August, right? So how many more months left in the year? People that have been on the sidelines are clearly starting to be like, oh my God, I need to play catch up here. We need to get involved. This is not working out the way we thought it would work out. And there's obviously the fear of missing out. And I think to a certain extent, there's a lot of that going on. So that late cycle money coming in typically gets in, I think, at the wrong time. And because all the indicators that we talk about continue to sort of go the wrong way. And you mentioned it, earnings deceleration. Liz talked about it at the top of the show. These earnings have beaten on a much lowered bar, but at a certain point, the comps get more difficult, right? And then we're going to have a conversation. And I think that's what we're sort of looking at now, because whether you realize it or not, margins have been contracting. Revenue growth has been contracting for a bit. Yes, maybe beating very much lowered expectations, but still contracting. You got to keep these things in context. Let's take 2019 just in a nutshell, right? There was a yield curve inversion, but it was like by a whisker for a half a minute, right? And it was in August, I believe, of that year. That's one of those inversions that in my book doesn't count. That didn't really count as a true signal. Usually it needs to be at least 25 basis points. I would say even 50 basis points. And it needs to last for, let's call it a month. These are just my measurements just to say that's a meaningful inversion. It really did happen, right? That didn't occur in 2019. Fast forward a little bit. When the market started going down in October, it was because Jerome Powell said something along the lines of, we are far from neutral. They were trying to find that neutral rate. We are nowhere near a neutral rate right now. The hope of bulls and optimists is that they can do that, go back and find neutral in a gradual way without anything breaking in the meantime. So I understand that's the suggestion and that is the hope uh, of people that are really on board in this rally. But this is a completely different environment. We're not even going to try to find neutral this year, let alone maybe the first half of next year, right? And to hope that something won't break between now and then, it's possible. I think all three of us would argue it's less probable because we've got tightening going on and you've got yield curves around the globe. I was trying to find a chart. Don't you hate that when you read an article and you know that it existed and then you can't find it anywhere? That's why I was looking down this whole time. Anyway, I can't find it, but I read it last night. It was a chart of yield curves re-steepening, not just in the US, in Japan and around the globe. So now we've got global yield curves re-steepening at a time when the Bank of Japan is messing with the biggest carry trade of all time. (laughs) I, I think people should be trepidatious about that. And 
comparing to 2019 or comparing to 1987, right? These are not good comps. You have to remember what happened at the end of 1987, what happened after 2019. Let's not tempt fate. I'm glad you brought that up because the Bank of Japan, Danny Moses has been talking about this for a while. We've brought it up. We talked about it a few minutes ago as well. The analog I would use, remember the, the yuan devalue, I think it was August 2015. If I'm off by a year, I apologize, but I think I'm right. And then you saw the sort of the after effects to the global markets in the wake of that. And don't discount the importance of the Bank of Japan. And again, I think the announcement third, our Thursday night or their Friday morning wasn't nearly as draconian as the market thought it was going to be, but it doesn't mean they're out of the woods at all. They keep moving the goalposts and at a certain point, they're going to have a problem and you're starting to see it. Yes, Liz is right. The biggest carry trade in the history of mankind, these things start to unravel. It has implications for sure in it to equity markets. Another thing that a lot of folks got wrong about this year was just when we would start seeing the kind of lag effect of the, the rate increase increases that have gone on now since March of 2022. And that was the first increase again since 2018 when that started happening last year. Felix Salmon over at Axios over the weekend had a piece out why the U.S. economy is so immune to rate hikes. We spent 15 years before the rate hikes steadily deleveraging and ensuring that debtors couldn't easily fall victim to a credit crunch. And it's also interesting. And it's not just when you think about debtors, it's it's consumers, but it's also like businesses, it's also banks. And so I think that's something that when you think about all that fiscal stimulus that we had, in the pandemic, you know, yeah, a lot of that's been wound down. And yeah, we've seen consumer credit go up, but we've also seen like the access to credit now for businesses has been really tough. And we made the point that people are still borrowing, but they're just basically doing it at higher rates. And so that'll be interesting. That might have just pushed out the issues that we might have once the economy eventually slows. But in the meantime, if they still have access to credit and they're still borrowing at higher rates, it is what it is. And he also made the point that household and corporate debt is mostly fixed rate rather than floating rate. So you put those things together and you say to yourself, like sentiment has basically shifted about where we are in this economic cycle. And when you put the IRA, you put the CHIPS Act, you put a bunch of the other fiscal stuff in there that's gone on under the Biden administration over the last couple of years, and you're saying to yourself, okay, it makes sense. And at some point in the not so distant future, and Liz, I, this is something that's going to be hotly debated, the Fed is going to reorient that inflation target a bit higher from that 2% bound. And I think it probably finds a, a different equilibrium where the Fed funds is going to go to when things do eventually slow. And I guess, what does that mean for this whole equation too, if you're talking about how, why we are immune to the rate hikes? Because it really has been this push-pull between deflation pre-pandemic, inflation after the, now disinflation, you know what I mean? It seems confusing for the normies out there. None of us are economists, but talk to me about what you think that means for risk assets for stocks. Yeah. So that's one of those things that I'm going to get the popcorn out for and just wait and watch the Fed try to explain how they're going to raise their target. I don't know that we'll get a statement that says we're going to move it from two to two and a half. I think it's going to be more like we're willing to be flexible around the 2% target, or it's going to be, we'll make up another new measurement, right? Like the super core minus everything except for toothpaste, that sort of thing. And, and it'll be like, well, that measurement is exactly where we want it. So I think that it actually has the potential for being one of those things that people look at and yeah, we expected that to happen. We saw this coming, but then it actually has a much bigger impact than we expect on the market. I don't know what it's going to do in the immediate term, but it could send a message depending on how he says it, depending on how the message comes out, it could send a message of we don't have the tools to fix this as much as we thought we did. And they're not as effective as we thought they were, or they're not as effective as they've been for the last 20 to 30 years. And if that's the interpretation that we don't have the tools, then you could look at that and say, what if we have runaway inflation? What if we have entrenched inflation and we now don't have the tools to fight it? That's the risky part of it. The positive side of it would be, okay, what's the difference between two and two and a half? I would actually tell you, if you look over a very long historical period, there's a sweet spot of CPI between 1% and 3% year over year. This is headline CPI, where the market still tends to do pretty well. I would argue that there is a decent band around that 2% target where we're still okay. It's going to be all about why did they move it? Why are they being more flexible with it? They've pigeonholed themselves a bit with this 2%. They've been adamant about it for quite some time. So if they were to just a reverse course seemingly out of nowhere, I don't know what the interpretation of the market would be, but my sense is they'll set the groundwork for exactly that 
in Jackson Hole. They'll start to put feelers out and see what the reaction is, and you'll know they'll get questions about it. You know all the nonsense that happens at these things. So that's where they'll start a, these trial balloons will be floated. I think it's important to talk about this, and we've brought it up a number of times. You're seeing, whether people want to acknowledge it or not, a very slow reacceleration, which is going to get a lot faster, of inflation of some of these commodities into the fall and into early part of next year, which I think one of the reasons they've been so steadfast and so hawkish in their tone is because they see that as well. And right before our very eyes, Dan, is crude oil's gotten off the mat, gasoline making 52-week highs. These are important inputs, and the underlying equities have done pretty well. The OIH has gone from 245 almost to 340. I think it made a new 52-week high, which was a then a multi-year high last week. So keep an eye on that as well. I'm skeptical that we see a meaningfully pick up inflation if we don't have a China-like reflation of their economy. And I know we've been talking a lot about some of the sort of support that the, the government is looking to increase consumer behavior and the like. And when you just read about how much household income is wrapped up into the property sector, and we know that the debt issue that they have over there as it relates to real estate, it just seems like one of those things that they're going to be pushing on a string for a while. And then you hear like their youth unemployment rate, 21%. I I just, I don't know, the the China thing seems to be coming unwound before our eyes with GDP that looks low single digits. You you know what I mean? That's just something that five years ago was like unfathomable. Going back to guy, when you talk, about August of 2015, when the Chinese did devalue the one, you remember the mayhem that existed in markets all over the world, in every market, not just the stock market and currencies and commodities. And so in fixed income, it's just interesting to me. I don't know. I'm a little, I'm just going to push back on that one because I feel like global growth is not really materializing. I don't know, man, if all this productivity that has been promised by the trillions of dollars and gains in the stock market related to AI happens, we might see a less dependence on some of those other like inputs and greater productivity. And so, I don't know, that's my take on that. I'm not sure that's going to be such a, like such a headwind. One of the things that we haven't talked about in a while that we used to, and I think people need to revisit now is you want to watch break-even inflation. Watch the two, the five, and the 10-year break-even inflation levels now, if you're worried about a reacceleration in inflation, because that's the kind of stuff that the Fed is going to look at to try to gauge whether or not it's entrenched, whether or not they've gone far enough, whether or not they need to do more or speed up the asset runoff, all the things that they're going to have to try to figure out if their tool belt is working. Uh, I think break-even inflation needs to come back into the conversation. Let's hit some earnings really quickly before we get out of here. Because again, we said it's a big week. I don't think we need to do Apple or the semis. I think, Guy, you and I talk about the whole heck of a lot. One of the things that I'm actually looking out for is, we, we just mentioned that obviously Liz's company, SoFi, reported this morning trading pretty decently on, on a beat and raise. I want to see what PayPal, what Square, what Coinbase, some of these fintechs, which were the darlings in 2021, right? And got absolutely nailed. I think they were down 80 some percent from their highs to their lows last year. And they've all had some big gains. I want to see how investors treat those quarters. This is one tomorrow before the opening Uber. Okay. This stock has rallied like 50% in the last few months or so alone. It's approaching a hundred billion dollar market cap. Airbnb reports this week, also up 50% in just a matter of months, approaching a hundred billion dollars in market cap. DoorDash, which is a $35 billion market cap, also up 80% of the year. So some of these, and, and I'm bringing these up because these are big market caps for companies that their business models were clearly called into question, or at least the valuations associated relative to their profitability. Now, Airbnb is profitable. Uber is getting more profitable here. DoorDash, obviously, this is a business model where the jury's still out on. And I go back to the fintech names. PayPal is a very profitable company trading at a very big discount to many of its peers and the market. So at this stage of the game, guy, I want to see how investors react. And I brought up Roku before. Now, this is a very different name. It's a much smaller market cap. But to see those sorts of moves on beats and raises at this, it's not bullish, in my opinion, when you're seeing that sort of behavior. We talked about it with the mega cap names as well. When you're able to add anywhere from 100 to $150 billion of market cap over the course of seemingly minutes, if not you know, a little longer term, that's problematic. That doesn't speak to me, at least, to a market that's functioning properly. It's 
speaks to what you started leading with is the animal spirits that are alive and well. And we're going to talk again to Batnick tomorrow and his podcast will be mentioned without question, but it's probably a great time to be bringing that up because that's what's going on right now. But does that speak to a healthy market? In my opinion, absolutely not. Hey, Liz, what do you make of, we're seeing investors get a little pickier though on some things like the reaction to like GM and Ford's earnings, I think are pretty interesting. So it seems like a lot of money that originally flowed into the mega cap tech then it found its way, like I'm making the point about some of those other tiered sort of names, but it's coming out of some of these stories that had huge runs. Like Ford's a great example of a stock that was trading at $11.5 in late May and traded as high as $15.5 earlier this month, and now it's at 13 you know, you know what I'm saying? So it feels like it's round tripping on some of that. So investors are getting a bit more picky at a time where the story of the market over the last month and a half was this it widening out, right? This increasing breadth or so. And maybe that's going back to what Tom Lee was saying about August is that once we get through earnings, right, once we have a better sense that the Fed is probably pretty close to done and raising interest rates, but keeping them higher for longer, maybe we will see a lot more stock selection from here on out. Maybe the easy money has been made in the stock market so far in 2023. If that's the case, I think that's the way that it should work. I personally believe that the broadening out of the rally was still momentum based. It was the idea that we had these big run in large cap tech in a, a very narrow part of the market. And then people got worried, maybe I'm being too bearish. I need to get off the sidelines. I need to put money to work, but I'm not going to put it to work in something that's trading at 80 times forward earnings. So I'm going to put it to work in something else in the market that's cheaper, which is where you found the broadening. Small caps participated, cyclical sectors participated that hadn't before because they looked cheap and all people wanted to do was put money in equities. Now through earnings season, if investors are rational, which over the long term, they become more and more rational. We all know that in the short term, there can be irrational exuberance. That's a book title. That's not, I'm not going to coin that phrase, but there can be that in the short term. And if people are rational and paying attention to fundamentals, some of the steam should come out. And that is probably what we're seeing in a decent number of those names. Now, you've got things like over the last few weeks, meme stocks up. One of them was up a thousand percent, right? When things like that happen, I think naturally investors look at it and say, as much as we've enjoyed that run, probably not sustainable. And you get to a point where everything feels a little toppy and people take their foot off their gas a little bit. And I think that's what's happening. Again, that doesn't necessarily mean that it has to all come tumbling down. I think there still would need to be a shock or some kind of headline that sends everybody to the exit door. And that has hasn't happened, but some air out of the balloon is natural. Yeah. And I just want to make one other point, guy. You go out of your way to say, I have been less than bullish on the broad market, but like two sectors that have been huge beneficiaries of rotations just of late have been energy. You pointed out the OIH. It's something that you've been bullish on now for a while. Also transports. Look at the way the, the IYT trades here. This is one thing. And I just want to, we can end on this because I think Liz, I'm glad you brought up the Mike Wilson thing. We had Mike two Fridays ago on our pod, and this was before the Monday headlines were that Mike Wilson throws in the towel. To your point, he did not do that, but he articulated the fact that he was wrong on price. And if he continues to be wrong on some of the other things, then he will actually have to throw in the towel. But the jury's still out. And when you think about this, okay, and it's one of those things that like, I don't know anybody, okay, on the buy side who run big money, who really give a shit about what a strategist and what their target is. They care about their thought process. They care about the inputs that go into it. They don't care about year-end targets and this and that or whatever. They care about how do you get to your S&P number? How do you get to the multiple that you think should be on it? What are the commodity price inputs? What are the, the FX inputs? What are the yield inputs? What are the inflationary inputs? That's the stuff that really matters. And I got to tell you, as somebody who spent, and guy, you were on the street for a very long time. When you think about the sorts of people, you don't need them to be right to the penny. You need to actually understand their frameworks and then help that inform your decisions about what you're doing. Because at the end of the day, only you can make money in the market, not some strategist who writes a report every Monday or comes on a podcast or goes on CNBC and says this and that or whatever. And I know that's something, Guy, that you believe in. We'll end it on that if you guys have some thoughts. I think strategists have a very hard job. Most of them are not economists, right? They're dealing Ditto. with lots of different inputs. I will speak on behalf of myself as a strategist. I am highly allergic to having a target price largely because I think my job is to talk about the direction, not necessarily where it's going to end. I am willing to bet that there is not a strategist out there who enjoys having target prices. I think many of them are forced into having targets. And I think we all very well know that if we make a target that's 12 months out, the likelihood of it coming to fruition is slim to none. So targets are, are not all that useful. I think it's about direction. And I think it's about 
where we are in the cycle and what usually happens. I say this, and this might sound odd, listen to everybody, but don't listen to anybody. And what that means is you take in all the inputs you possibly can. Your decision is what is going to basically determine whether you make money or lose money. It's not Mike Wilson's fault. It's not Guy Adami's fault, Dan Nathan, Elizabeth Young's fault. If you lose money, you're the ultimate decision maker. So take all the inputs you can, listen to everybody, and then make decisions based off how your interpretation of that is. But again, casting blame in this environment, it's never necessarily a good thing. EY from SoFi, that's Liz Young. Thanks for joining us on a Monday morning. Guy, Christopher Adami, I'll see you a bit later on XMSR Business Radio 132. You and I will be on there every Monday at noon. You guys should call in. You're going to be listening to this by the time we already did it on this Monday, but call in next Monday. All right, stick around for Guy and my conversation with Clark Briner of Revere Capital. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com micros. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry iConnections membership-only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. SoFi, the all-in-one super app for banking, borrowing, and investing. Earn industry-leading APY, get great loan rates, and trade stocks. SoFi, get your money right. Banking products and loans offered by SoFi Bank NA, NMLS 696891. Brokerage and active investing products offered through SoFi Securities, LLC, member FINRA SIPC. We're joined today by Clark Briner. Clark is the founder and principal at Revere Capital. Founded in 2006, Revere Capital is an institutional private credit manager with deep expertise in lower middle market commercial real estate, bridge lending, and specialty finance. Clark, welcome aboard. Great to be here. Thank you, gentlemen. It's always important, I think, for the audience to sort of get a snapshot as to who you are, how the firm came to pass those things. So indulge us for a few minutes and give us your backstory. As you mentioned, we started the firm in 2006. Prior to that, I kind of had a traditional financial background. I worked at a large investment bank down on Wall Street and then worked at a private equity shop as well. Uh, in 2006, saw a little bit of writing on the wall a little early on what was happening on the debt capital markets. And we started the firm in 2006, limped along in 06 and 07. Uh, we all know what started to happen. And 07 to 13, uh, the firm really got its legs and uh, the growth trajectory was terrific at that point. Give us a sense, Clark, of what it felt like creating a firm focused on an asset class that was very much at the eye of, of a financial storm, if you will. You, you came from a different part of the business, and then you're now managing a, an institutional portfolio of assets. Just give us a sense of like what it, what it was like building a firm in that sort of environment. And you just mentioned something. We started to get our legs at this point, I'm sure. There were a lot of lessons learned in that kind of 07, 08, 09, and 10 period. Yes, we were fortunate to be drinking out of a fire hose, if it's a. <laughs> the most fortunate thing was we started right at the beginning of it, so we didn't have a meaningful legacy portfolio. While a lot of my competitors and banks in particular were spending their time looking backwards, solving problems, we had a unique opportunity to only look forward because we had a very minimal portfolio. Shopping or buying from 08 to 13 there was reduced competition. There was significantly impaired pricing. And so 
whether it's lucky or good, it was a phenomenal time to start the business. You mentioned that period of time, and there was obviously a lead up into 07, 08, 09 that I think probably had a lot of people scratching their heads. In our businesses, being early is being wrong. But it turned out, though, the people that saw the writing on the wall were rewarded. Took a while, but they were rewarded. So my question is, do you see any parallels between then, which you obviously cut your teeth with, and to now, I would submit there's some hauntingly similar things going on, but other people say it's nothing like it. What are your thoughts on that? I would say both of you all are correct. There are definitely similarities and there is there are some differences as far as bank capitalization and stuff of that nature. They are a little bit more on it this time than maybe they were last time. That doesn't mean they're going to get it exactly right. No one ever does. The opportunity set, we're in the first phases of 08 right now. There's look at the real estate capital markets. There's a significant bid ask spread. No different than what happened going into 08. Buyers wanted X price, sellers wanted to buy at Y price. That's why you see real estate transactions down year over year at 2% plus. Lending is down equally as much on the CRE side. CMBS is stunningly down, almost 75%, lowest since 2010. So we're seeing the front end of this. We're seeing just the cracks. There is opportunity for, especially the debt side of the balance sheet, to really provide value, provide liquidity, and help those equity owners and value-add owners through periods of this time by being creative and flexible with the capital. Clark, give us a sense. It seems like the term private credit has had uh, a bit of a resurgence in 2023 for a whole host of reasons, but give us a sense of, of the product as you see it and what has changed in 2023 in the wake of this kind of regional banking crisis that we had in March, because it's something that, you know, you look up, it's not something that was written a whole heck of a lot about or talked a whole heck of a lot about on CNBC, uh, maybe a bit more on Bloomberg in the past, but give us a sense for the product and this moment in, in a way that we've experienced in 2023 and why we're hearing about private credit a whole heck of a lot more than we were, let's say in the last few years. Private credit is usually the person that comes in and helps aid the capital markets through times when the traditional lenders, i.e. banks, CMBS, are pulling back. Um, private credit is more expensive. It's generally more flexible. It doesn't have all the compliance aspects that a bank lender is going to have. And not that's bad, but oftentimes there's unnecessary covenant compliance and regulatory that really stops someone's business plan from being successful. But I'd say that's not in a, a negative connotation. But the, the luxury of running a debt fund versus a bank is I have the ability to think. And to think is to solve a problem. To solve a problem is to add value. And at the end of the day, the private credit market is really just trying to add value to those who are out there buying and operating and adding value to real estate projects. Interesting. So anecdotally, there was an article out. Barry Sternlich's firm just defaulted on a $200 million office mortgage amid, you know, mounting basically problems in the space. Now, he's sort of a legend in our world. I know you're obviously familiar with him. That to me is flashing red. When you see something like that, read something like that, that's typically not something you read at the end, more at the beginning. Thoughts on that? And I'm not asking you to obviously comment on him, but just in terms of what it potentially could mean. No, you're right. Barry is one of the more respected real estate people, not only in the United States, but nationally. Uh, very smart and seasonally successful investor. I would say, let's leave Barry aside and do anecdotally. What we're seeing in the market is the more seasoned investors, the people that lived through eight and survived it are making the first bids, meaning, hey, here's your office building back. I'll wipe out my equity. I understand my loss, but I'm not having a death by a thousand cuts, which a lot of people tried to hold on through 08. And 08 was a three, four, five year cycle. It was not a one or two. To hold on to that office building, I don't know enough about that transaction, but I'm sure, and Barry's a smart guy, so is his team. They modeled out three, four, five years and said, the loss multiple is three, four, five times. They're just giving the keys back now. We are seeing that the seasoned, knowledgeable operators are making deals, if not handing back keys early, because they learned last time that holding on is too expensive. So give us a sense then from those lessons, what are the knock-on effects of that? So think about a lot of listeners, right, of this podcast. They're really focused on the stock market. They're focused on like some of the economic data that as it relates to unemployment and manufacturing and all those sorts of things that we think are like 
really important inputs to the economy and therefore maybe reflected in the stock market. When you start seeing some of these headlines, and the reason why we were really excited to have this conversation today is because we feel like there's going to be more and more, right? When you hear of, of someone like Barry, listen, his name is his name. The firm has been around Starwood for, for a very long time here. And you start seeing those sorts of names handing the keys back right now. You feel like a lot of less experience. People were taking more and more risk. You know what I mean? Over the last few years, things could get really ugly. So what do you think some of the knock-on effects for some of our listeners who are maybe not that focused on your product or commercial real estate in general what do you think? How does this play out a little bit? Because if you go back to that February, March period, we're in the throes of that kind of regional banking crisis. There was clearly a very different sort of crisis going on um, about liquidity. And so now we're saying on the other side of this is probably some sort of credit event. Is this the, the kind of first inning of that credit event, right? You're in very early innings of a credit event. There is a massive math problem out there. You can't buy real estate at 1% SOPR and refinance it at 5% SOPR and not have a math problem unless you've tripled or two and a half times your NOI, which hasn't happened in the market and won't. NOI growth has been strong, robust in most asset classes, but not enough to keep up with five basis points to 500 basis points SOPR over 18 months. And so there's a math problem. There will be a day of reckoning. We all hope it's not as severe. I think the Fed has done a reasonable job in trying to find the ever-elusive soft landing. We're seeing inflation coming down. We are not seeing a massive decline in corporate earnings or NOI degradation yet. Uh, We all know that's coming in the office space as those leases roll. So there will definitely be opportunities, not only in the credit space, but the equity space of real estate. In general, our job as a real estate debt fund to our investors to provide a very high margin of safety and a high current yield. And so we're not correlated with the stock market in any way. Last year's stock market was down almost 20. We were up about 14. We're used as a fixed income alternative or a absolute return vehicle. I've said for a while, and again, I'm not suggesting I'm right, but the Fed put, which used to come in the form of the S&P 500, might still be there. I would submit it's probably at 4,500, we're probably 1,700-ish handles away from it. I think it's south of 4,000. But I think the Fed put comes in the form of one of two things, either unemployment trending back to close to 5%, which we're nowhere near right now, or the credit market starting to seize up, which doesn't seem to be happening. I'm surprised by it. Maybe Silicon Valley Bank in a perverse way was a good thing for the credit markets, but you mentioned the word sort of inevitability. I use that word a lot as well. Do you see some sort of credit event out there? And what do you think could be the impetus for it or the match to it? On the real estate side, the bid-ask spread is pretty prevalent right now. How does that end? It happens generally from the debt side. First aspect is going to be when debt maturities happen, and we have a massive front-loading of debt maturities. This year is over $500 billion. Next year is just under $500 billion. And then 20 five in 2025 is going to be about 425, 450 billion. So when those come due, most of that debt was underwritten at SOFR sub 150 basis points. There's going to be, as I alluded to earlier, a math problem. NOI growth has not increased enough to cover a refinancing where the cost of your debt goes up 50 to hundred percent. And so at that point, operators and owners are going to have to make a tough decision. Do I ante up, put in more equity, add collateral, and see if I can hold on for another day? Either rates come down or NOI's continue, NOI growth continues. Or do I sell at a discount? Do I let my note be sold? And, and that's going to happen, has to happen to reset the market, if you will. I don't see a massive decline in value on real estate. What I see is a topping to a slight decline. In general, if you look at the math over history, For every 100 basis points, your rate goes up, or so for in this instance, your cap rate's going to increase about 35 to 45 basis points, depending on the asset class, markets obviously as well. So let's just say cap rates have gone up 200 basis points in two years, 25 to maybe even 50% of the people who bought real estate between 2018 and into 2021 say that the bank generally is going to own a piece of their property. They don't own it. That, That will happen. Every downturn, people 
prognosticate Armageddon. That's not going to happen. The Fed doesn't, the government doesn't let that happen anymore. We aren't going to see an RTC justice situation. We're going to see amended extends happen as we did in 08, and they're going to let it slowly roll off. But what that's going to do is it's going to provide an immense opportunity for debt funds like us to not only be originating debt, but also buying and restructuring debt to allow operators and owners to stay in and work through the math problem where it's oftentimes not best to just go the foreclosure bankruptcy route. Is it fairly unique though, this time around some of the dynamics in the commercial real estate space with just the changing in work dynamics after the pandemic? You just mentioned that you don't see real estate values getting hit that hard. But in some big cities right now, you can't give office space away, right? Doesn't that have to weigh on valuations in some of those kind of commercial real estate hubs? Without a doubt, you are spot on correct. I was not necessarily focusing on the office space. Okay. The office space is the redhead stepchild of real estate right now. It has a couple headwinds coming out of its direction. Not as many people using office, the dynamics of work from home, which some companies are saying come back. Some are still being pretty flexible. What you're going to have are the haves and have-nots in office space. I would say, A, located offices in good cities are going to be fine. You're not going to see massive degradation in value. You will see some for sure, but it's your C and B office that's probably going to be in that Armageddon decimated. I was reading a report somewhere that there's some REITs that own a lot of B and C office in New York City that are already operating all those buildings at a loss. You can only do that for so long. The capital markets will only allow you to do that for so long for there's an event where you're just going to have a massive either liquidation or REIT issue there. If you're looking at it through the lens that, that Guy and I do, and, and again, we are by far experts in this space, but a lot of the publicly traded REITs, you know, which were getting decimated, right, six to nine months ago, have come off. Well, actually, really, there was a gut punch in, in March, right, when, when the thought was that a lot of these regional banks are really going to be on the hook, right, for a, a, a lot of this unfolding of this event in, in the commercial real estate space. But they're up a lot now, right? Some of them are up 50, 60, 70%. And again, the equity is the equity. But regional banks, if you see what like the regional banking index has done, if you look at what the large money center banks have done in the equity markets, at least the way that we look at it, there is some sort of reprieve. And I'm just curious, is that a bit of a head fake? For me personally, again, I don't follow or analyze the REIT space, but just from a macro real estate situation, I think there was an overreaction, which is typical from the public markets back a year ago, and there was a massive decline. It's, pro it's come back up 50, 60%, as you said. I'm not sure that's the right number, but I'm not sure the sell-off was the right number either. It's between those two, there is a sense, maybe it's false, maybe it's real, that the debt capital markets aren't going to be as aggressive and downturn prone as originally thought when they started raising rates 50 basis points every six, eight weeks. Again, we have to address the math problem. Going to be modest pain in addressing that math problem. I think what adds to the math problem, and obviously this dance that I am no expert at all, you've forgotten more about this than I'll know, but bond market volatility for the last couple of years has been off the charts. And just over the last few weeks, we saw a two's 10 spread, which went to 111 basis points, down to about 38, back to 104, down to 80. I think as we're sitting here right now, it's north of 100 basis points again. My sense is that works for your business because you're nimble enough where you can navigate and you can take advantage of but it's probably somewhat deleterious to the industry overall. Am I on to something? You are. The benefit of being in a private space is we are generally the people that come in and add the most value when there's dislocation and volatility. And so that is happening right now. And that's why the opportunity to be an investor in the private credit space is like I haven't seen probably in a decade. The heyday of the private markets were 08 to 13, 14. And then the capitalization started coming back and maybe even the overcapitalization in 2021. And now we'll go through a normal market cycle. We like to bring down the peaks and fill in those troughs, but you're going to have volatility. Give us a sense then how some of our listeners could see opportunities that are going to present themselves to a fund like yours are going to be really at the detriment, let's say, to other investors, you said we're in the early innings here. What are some of the things that like some of our listeners should keep an eye on over the course of the back half of this year and, and get a sense of this has the ability to 
accelerate a little bit. I think you made a really interesting point though, Clark, is that the powers that be, whether it be the regulators, whether it be the treasury or, or whoever, they're not going to let an all out meltdown happen, right? In, in this space here, because the knock on effects could be more financial institutions failing. But what are some things that like would give you a sense that the opportunity set is getting better for you, but might be worse for some other holders of these assets. I can give you a couple of things. You nailed one thing, which is you have to watch the regulators because there is an absolute severe math problem. How it's handled is what's going to affect you and I, the investor in the real estate space. One trial balloon that the Fed or the, the, the regulators floated out, there's a 300-100 rule about the capitalization of banks and commercial real estate loans. Of the approximate 3,000 banks out there, 700 of them are not in compliance with the most basic of CRE lending, which is a 300-100 rule. They have put out there that they're going to start being a little more forthright and then enforcing that. If they do that, you're going to see an even greater retrenchment from banks in the CRE lending space. That opens up an even wider opportunity for the private credit markets. Private credit markets also were a lot more nimble and able to serve value-add operators, they can buy back their debt, we'll finance it. We can buy debt from banks. We can help banks work through more difficult portfolios. Banks are notoriously bad at working out and resolving productively. They, what's the old joke? All I have is a hammer. Everything I see is a nail. Mm -hmm. That's a little bit of how banks operate. One of the things we look at, not only in our hiring, but our operations, is can someone step back, be objective, and solve a problem in the most productive, not only for us lender, but also the borrower. You can solve the borrower's problem. You are a productive lender. Let me start connecting dots here. These are my opinions. I still think there's another shoe to drop in terms of small and regional banks. I believe that. I think regardless, regulation is coming to a theater near you. Credit standards are increasing. The ability to access credit is going to get more difficult. Banks, almost by definition, I think their margins are going to decrease based on a number of different things. If that environment comes to pass, my sense is that works extraordinarily well for you and your fund. So in a perverse way, the shittier the environment, the probably the better it is for you guys. Am I onto something? I'm definitely one that I'd never like to look at, at someone else suffering as my gain, but I look at it from a lens of we have unique ability and opportunity to come in and solve a problem and provide liquidity to a market, help people. The opportunity is without a doubt more robust, not only on the deal volume side, but also the pricing side. On the regional and smaller banks, my prediction here in the next two to four years is you're going to see a transition from these billion to $3 billion small banks, hiring a bunch of bankers, going out and trying to be an expert commercial real estate lending. Because what we're seeing is a lot of the banks wanting to come to us and lend. So we'll make a 70% loan to value loan on that retail center, the bank will come in and back lever us at 50% of appraised value. We'll hold the 50 to 70%. We do all the dirty work. We do the servicing. We're a first loss piece. The bank earns basically the same rate, but they have a much better borrower, much more financially sophisticated than your average real estate operator. And it's so much more scalable. You don't have to have a hundred bankers out there knocking on all the doors. You just find five, 10, 15 different debt funds and back lever their operations. One if by land, two if by sea was a great restaurant in Manhattan. Very romantic place, townhouse. I think it was Aaron Burr's townhouse, which is topical because I think the Aaron Burr-Alexander yeah. Hamilton duel took place however many hundred years ago, uh, a few weeks or so ago. With that said, people are not going to find you that way, but how can people find you at Revere Capital? So we have a whole dedicated team of originators that are out working with value-add operators as well as we're starting to see some of those distressed people looking for debt purchases coming out of the woodwork. And we are doing everything we can to be known as a creative capital solution. We have a dedicated team of six people out there. All their jobs to do is find operators, owners, and opportunities to lend in the credit space. And so I'm all ears if you have more opportunities for us. Well, Clark, Briner, we really appreciate you going off the tape with us, with Guy and myself on the tape here. Yeah, thank you for your time. You can find us at reverecapital.com. It will Revere Capital, Dallas-based credit shop. Come to our website. You can find white papers, articles, and other information that we put out there about the current market environment. Thanks a lot, Clark, for joining us. Thank you, gentlemen. 
Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, FactSet, and SoFi. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.